what we uh, observe the best organizations doing is exactly the opposite. They, they recognize the potential for really encouraging people to work together in teams and groups of people seeking to promote benefits that can be conferred on other parties that derive benefits that are of considerable significance to not just the customers of those organizations, but society and the natural world at large. And that is what we need to be seeking from the organizations that we are creating throughout the economies and nation states in which we're operating to help us address the problems that we're facing. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose, trust, and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Tudoson, and I'm the co-founder of Hearts Management. It's such a joy to welcome you back to a new season of the podcast. We have a really fantastic number of conversations and guests lined up that I truly believe will bring value to you in your work, whether you're a leader or an HR ethics professional. Here in Malmö, Sweden, we're beginning to see clear signs of autumn. The nights are getting cooler and there's an increasing amount of colorful leaves by the wayside. While it does look pretty, I know that I don't like it because it's leading towards an unescapable winter and I'm definitely not a winter person. I'm envious of everyone who lives in a bit warmer climate. However, I also feel excited about this season because it's a new work season and it's another opportunity to make a mark on the world of work. And I know that for many listeners to this podcast, you are passionate about your work and you believe that organizations could and perhaps also should have a positive impact on the world. As we've navigated the pandemic, I think that resolve has only strengthened for many of us. For those in the corporate sector, we sense that there should be a purpose for business that is beyond just financial profit, something that is super important, of course, but still we need to see something more. But as we see an increase in calls for corporate responsibility, I think we also see an increase in purpose initiatives that lack integrity and authenticity. So how should we think about purpose and how can we actually put it into practice? I couldn't think of a better guest to engage in this conversation than Professor Colin Mayer. Colin is a professor of management at the University of Oxford, Said School of Business. He was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire by the Queen of England for his work on economic justice. And he is the co-author of Putting Purpose into Practice. Colin has also been deeply involved in the development of the economics of mutuality, which I talked to Jay Jacob about on episode number 30. So if you want, you can go back and listen to that to get even a bigger context. But without further ado, let's welcome Professor Colin Mayer. So Colin, it's an incredible honor and, and privilege to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much indeed for having me and it's a delight to be here. 
So you've had an incredible academic career and, and you've been acclaimed for your important work in the area of economic justice. And I just wanted to start with understanding a little bit of your story and where did the idea of economic justice begin to become important to you? Well, from some of my earliest work as an academic, I focused on the importance of trust in business and commitments between parties that have close relationships in the economic sphere. So I started work as, a, as an economist and a financial economist. And one of the first articles that I published was called New Issues in Corporate Finance. When I talked about the importance of relationships and relationships based on trust that argued that uh, it was much more than what financial economists typically emphasize, and that is the importance of contracts. Trust in business is of fundamental significance. I then worked in the area of international comparisons of financial systems around the world and realized that there were pronounced differences in the extent to which that notion of relationships was emphasized in different countries around the world and in uh, different financial systems, all based in capitalist principle, but nevertheless fundamentally different in the way in which they viewed the importance of relationships. And then came the financial crisis, which brought home the deficiencies of the conventional ways in which we look at the financial sector and financial transactions. And that really started me on uh, the work that I did to produce the book, uh, Firm Commitment, Why the Corporation is Failing Us and How to Restore Trust in It. And that was the basis then of a, a subsequent book that I wrote on prosperity, which focused on purpose. That is so fascinating. And, and I wanted to dig into that topic of trust with you and, and understanding the importance, of course, of, of trust in business. And I, I think, or trust in any organization. And I'm, I'm sure that, that any leader, any professional can relate to that. That is fundamental for the existence and the success of any organization. But just more to understand why we are maybe perhaps not succeeding in building that trust. So could you take us maybe back to that first book that you wrote and what are what were some of those key things that you found out and that you wanted to put forth in terms of speaking to trust in organizations? Well, let's think about what trust is. Trust is about having confidence in what other people are doing in relation to your interests when you're not observing them, or you cannot observe them. And a belief that even when that's the case, that they still have your interests at heart. Now, why is that such an important point? Well, I think the first thing I would suggest is its importance derives from the fact that in virtually all spheres of life, we cannot observe how people are behaving in relation to our own interests. Most of economics is built on the notion of contracts and formal legal contracts between different parties. And those contracts depend on their enforceability, which depends on being able to observe 
how other parties are conducting themselves. But if one recognizes that in essence, the vast proportion of relationships between different individuals are not based on that and cannot be based on that, then one suddenly realizes that there's a, whole, there's a great hole in our conventional view of economies. And that a key component of the successful functioning of societies, economies, nation states, the world at large, depends on us being able to trust people in an informal sense, in terms of what happens when one has no formal contracts with them, and when they are certainly not enforceable, even if one uh, did have them. So, so that element of the trustworthiness of individuals that underpins the basis of trust is one of the mo most important features of us as individuals to be able to compellingly establish that we are trustworthy to such an extent that other people should feel confident in having a trust in, in what we're doing. And one of the primary problems that exists in the way in which we structure the functioning of markets and companies and financial systems and economies negates the significance of that because it basically argues that uh, we have to incentivize people, incentivize people in a way that then puts their own interests first and says that, well, uh, each and every individual is only interested in what they can get out of the relationship with others. Now, that is a very bad starting point for trying to think about how does one build societies based on trust, where one, what, what one wants to do is exactly the opposite of that, not to emphasize the elements that are sometimes described as being homo economicus, that is to say, economic man, based on being selfish, greedy, and lazy, but to recognize that we are really at heart communal animals that seek to cooperate with each other, that want to be able to derive benefits from working together as communities and societies. And those are the elements that we need to bring out in terms of all of the relationships in our economies and societies. And that requires a very different way of viewing how we should be establishing the operation of our institutions, our companies, and our markets. I think that is, is fascinating. And, and I think, for example, if you look at Edelman's trust barometer as an example, you see that they look at trust in, in two different perspectives, both in terms of competence, but then also in terms of ethics. And, and so can I be trusted to kind of have your best interest at heart, just like you were talking about. And I think one of the ways that organizations today want to communicate and say, yes, we can be trusted is by communicating value statements or purpose statements or other things that kind of signal yes, that, yes, we care about you and we will put you first or we will put these interests for first or we care about the environment and, and so on. So what do you see in terms of the kind of evolution of that type of mindset and what is perhaps some of the problems around it? Well, it's very easy to make statements along the lines of, you should trust me uh, because I really have your interests at heart. 
it's very difficult to really give effect to that. It's very, it's very difficult for us to do that as individuals. But if we then put ourselves in the context of broader organizations that have as their objective really to promote the self-interest of those involved in those organizations, it becomes even harder. So one of the factors that I really explore and try to develop is how even if we are at heart predominantly motivated by our own interests, how can we successfully develop economies and companies and institutions that help to shift that in such a direction that we start to address the problems that we face as individuals, societies and the natural world. And to do that, we should recognize that institutions, by which I mean not just public organizations, but also private organizations, companies and financial institutions, can act as remarkable mechanisms for transforming the individuals in them from having a one set of objectives and priorities into having another. Now, let's take what happened in the financial crisis as an example of this. In essence, in many cases, or most cases, the bankers who operated in those financial institutions were very much like you and I, people of high integrity, uh, who wouldn't dreamed of behaving in the way in which they did in their organizations prior to and just after the financial crisis in that way at home. And in essence, what an organization can do is transform the integrity of individuals from being either quite uh, benign, altruistic objectives and values into being ones that are really very damaging for other parts of society. And I sometimes term that the notion of syntegrity. That is to say that it transforms individuals' integrity into something that is socially uh, undesirable and detrimental. On the other hand, organizations can do exactly the opposite. They can act in a form which I term saint-tegrity, where they convert our individual self-interests into things that are communally beneficial. In the case of the banks and financial institutions during and around the financial crisis, they display the features of syntegrity, of intensifying that degree of selfishness uh, and self-interest on the part of individuals in terms of the cultures and values of the organizations in which they were operating. But what we uh, observe the best organizations doing is exactly the opposite. They, they recognize the potential for really encouraging people to work together in teams and groups of people seeking to promote benefits that can be conferred on other parties that derive benefits that are of considerable significance to not just the customers of those organizations, but society and the natural world at large. And that is what we need to be seeking from the organizations that we are creating throughout the economies and nation states in which we're operating to help us address the problems that we're facing. 
I really love this picture of, of integrity versus integrity. And so I, I think that anyone listening to this podcast would want to aspire to build a type of organization that, that makes people rise to a higher level of, of integrity and, and of, of positive behavior. But I guess the question is, how do we actually do that? What are some of the, the key things that you have found in your research in terms of building an organization that is marked and characterized by sane integrity? Well, the first part of it is for the organization to recognize why it exists, why it was created in the first place, and what it's there to do, its reason for being. And that is its purpose. And having a real understanding of the purpose of the organization is critical for it being able to fulfill what it's there to do. Now, you might say, well, that's very odd. Of course, an organization knows what it's there to do. But actually, in the vast proportion of cases, organizations actually have virtually no clear idea as to why they exist or anything beyond a very basic uh, presumption as to what their function is. So that notion of clarity around the purpose of uh, an organization is key for being able to determine whether or not it's actually moving in the direction of sin or saintegrity, because the saintegrity is converting individual beliefs and interests into something that is of communal uh, interest for the organization as a whole in relation to what the purpose and the objective of that organization is. So stage one is know your purpose, know your purpose as you an individual, but know your purpose as you the organization within which you're operating. And then the second element is to really understand what are the values that are needed to support that purpose? What are the values that you as an individual need to uphold to be able to fulfill your own personal purpose? But it's equally important within the context of an organization that it is fully appreciative of what are the key values that then get translated into the culture of the organization. What are those key values that will allow that organization to fulfill its purpose. So I really want to dig in together with you into the thought and the idea of purpose. And again, we say that purpose is fundamental and that most organizations don't actually know what their purpose is. And we might know what we do, we might know how we do it, but we don't necessarily know why we are here. And I, I sometimes picture it as a journey. If we're going on a, on a journey in a boat, the destination is is the vision, but the the purpose is the reason why we got into the boat in the first place. And I, I think that's that's so many times something we don't really know. But I think a fundamental issue here is that if we think about the business sector, that we have a purpose that has been defined, I think, for, for a long time by the ideas of Milton Friedman and, and, and of others that have basically said that the fundamental purpose of a business is to maximize 
profits for its shareholders and that that's the social responsibility of the business. And I think many times we try to then build upon that and we try to add something more and we, we have that as a foundation and then we want to add something more, but we are also doing this, which is kind of in the interest of the greater good. But but I know that you, you question that assumption of the, the fundamental purpose of a business. So could you talk to us of why you do that and yeah, why you think that model and that idea is, is wrong? The um, notion that Milton Friedman put forward some 60 years ago that there is one and only one social purpose of business to increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game has been the basis and increasingly so of the way in which we have run not just our companies but our financial sectors and our economies more generally ever since and it's been the basis of business practice, business policy and business education. But the starting point to notice is that while you say it's been the case for so long, actually it's been so for a very short time, 60 years, in comparison to the duration of the corporation, which has a 2000 year history, starting under Roman law or as the Societas Publica Norum. And as such, the con initial conception, so if you pose the question, well, why was corporation created in the first place, you know, let alone why is a particular corporation now created as being the purpose of the corporation, then what you find is that it's a very different notion from that which emerged post Milton Friedman. And it's a notion around a corporation being there to perform a very public function. So in the context of ancient Rome, it was a need to perform a number of public functions that people did not trust or believe in the public administrations to perform of collecting taxes, uh, minting coins, looking after public buildings and things like that, which were then entrusted to companies that formed as corporations. And then if you move forward, you see the corporation taking on a number of guises, including the one that I'm currently sitting at here in Oxford University, uh, as being the form in which the oldest universities in the world were structured as corporations. And Oxford University and Cambridge University are still structured as corporations. And so the, the whole notion of a corporation was as a, was as a public entity. And then as you go forward in its history, you see it taking on more of a traditional commercial role that then results in the corporation becoming a freely incorporated entity that didn't have a need to specify its public function. And it's at that stage that the corporation begins to lose its direction. And uh, then the importance of the rise of stock markets as a source of financing pushes it increasingly in the direction until one ends with uh, Friedman assertion that the only purpose of business is to make money. 
Now, the reason why that is such a damaging place to arrive at is that it recognizes that, of course, uh, one wants it to do more than just make money and to be part of contributing to enhancing welfare more generally. But it relies then on a number of things to ensure that these self-interested businesses actually do act in the public interest, one of which is competition in markets. And what we know and increasingly observe is that competition fails dramatically and markets fail dramatically to provide that sort of assurance that self-interested companies act in a broader public interest. And then the Friedman proposition turns to regulation. That's what he means when he talks about staying within the rules of the game to uh, ensure an alignment of interest between business and society more generally. But what we're increasingly observing is that to deal with the sorts of problems that we're facing in relation to the environment, in relation to inequality, social exclusion, regulation simply cannot cope and fails itself repeatedly, partly because business becomes increasingly international, whereas regulation operates at a national level, and partly because technology means that business moves so rapidly that regulation is always dealing with yesterday's problems. So what really underpins the failure of that Friedman doctrine is that it views the need to align private with public interest as being something that is done extrinsically outside of the company by markets or by regulators. Whereas in fact, what is needed is for it to be intrinsic to the company, that the, the primary purpose of the company should be that it is there to help solve problems of individuals, societies, and the natural world. And that should be the reason why each and every business is created and to do so in a way that is commercially viable. So these businesses and corporations should not be philanthropic, they should not be charities, they should be commercially viable, financially sustainable and profitable, but they should derive that those profits from the problems that they're solving and the way in which they are serving society and the natural world and their customers. And that then takes us back to the original conceptualization of the corporation as was set out under Roman law. That is so, so helpful and, and, and so fascinating. And I think it, it helps us to rethink a lot of the things that we just assume about how companies, uh, what their roles are, what they should be doing. And I'm, I'm thinking about this concept of how we put purpose into practice and and you've written a a great book on that together with Bruno Roch uh, at the economics of mutuality and could you 
say perhaps some of the things that are fundamental for us if we want to kind of get back to that fundamental purpose of solving problems for people and planet instead of creating problems and then how we actually put that into purpose in our organizations. Right. So the the first point to make is the one that I was just saying, and that is to recognize that the purpose is intrinsic to the company. It's not just a strap line or a marketing campaign. It's the reason why it exists. Uh, and it's the basis on which its activities are formulated. So it's core to the business. It's not something done on the side. It's not even what is sometimes termed corporate social responsibility, which is about basically doing some philanthropic activities that lie alongside the core parts of tax activities. It should overpin the uh, strategy of the business so that the way in which strategy is formulated in a business should be determined by the purpose of the business. So in doing that, the first stage is to be really clear about that notion of what the purpose is. And the way in which I define the purpose is, as I was describing it in terms of solving problems and solving problems profitably, that the purpose of a business is to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. That's the first key part to it, producing profitable solutions. And the second key part is not to profit from producing problems for either people or planet. And that second part is equally important for reasons that we'll come back to in a bit. Now, in thinking then about what the purpose of a company is, the first key point is to have clarity about what are the problems that the business is there to solve? What problems? Whose problems? How does the business envisage solving those problems? Over what period is it solving those problems? And why is it particularly well suited to solving those problems? So that notion of business as being there to solve problems should be the basis on which the business determines its functions. The next stage then is in terms of looking at the ecosystems in which the business is operating, the markets in which it's operating, and understand who the various parties are in relation to those areas where it's, it's operating, obviously in relation to its customers, but also in terms of relationship with the different members of the communities in which it's operating, the different people who may be associated uh, with the customers and individuals like that. So to really understand the, the nature of the people and the problems that are being addressed. The next stage is then having gathered that real understanding and knowledge of the people and the communities and their problems, what are sometimes described as being the pain points within the ecosystems in which companies operate. The next stage then is to try and 
identify solutions to those problems that are really going to be effective ways of addressing the problems and the challenges that people face uh, as customers and communities and societies and, and the natural world. So that those solutions are the best solutions that can be uh, obtained for those problems. But remember that it has to be done in a form that is not just philanthropy, but in a form that is a commercial proposition. And so the key element is to establish a business model that delivers on those solutions based on a real understanding of the problems that people face. And a business model that allows the company to do so in a profitable form. So those are the key elements that take you from the notion of your carefully thought through purpose to how you then put it into practice. So I'm thinking about the people that need to be involved in this process. If we think about a company that has existed for quite some time, maybe it's a, a large, for example, multinational. I'm thinking many times when I, I look at work around purpose and even values, it becomes an exercise that is driven by the communications or marketing department, or maybe sometimes uh, from an outside marketing firm, or that it becomes something where you do kind of workshops around the company and, and all the employees should talk about what the purpose of the company is and why they go to work and so on. But that is not necessarily really involving the executive team or the board of the organization, but it's more something that is kind of outside. It's not maybe working on the on challenging the fundamental reasons of of what drives the business. So could you talk to that? What, who are kind of the fundamental players in defining that purpose in an organization that is in existence and that has been for, for quite some time? Well, it's critical that there is a process of consulting with the different parties involved in delivering on that purpose. So it is absolutely correct to say that the lead in terms of defining a company's purpose comes from those at the top. The executive and the board must feel a sense of real ownership of the purpose and a real desire to make it happen. Okay, so that this is something that they have to show a real passion uh, in achieving, that it's not just something that they're doing because you know they're expected to do it. It's something that they really believe in and they want to see happen within their organization. And as part of the formulation, there does have to be a process of consultation with people throughout the organization so that as the purpose is formulated, everyone appreciates that what their role in terms of the delivery of that purpose uh, will be so that they understand what their purpose within the organization in terms of contributing to the overall company's purpose should be. So, so that element of getting a real buy-in to the company's purpose throughout the organization is critical for its successful implementation because what one often observes as the most serious impediment 
to the actual adoption of a company's purpose is that there is resistance from certain parts within the organization that don't really believe in it. They don't think it the, the right or the valid purpose of the organization, or they simply don't think that that is actually what senior management places the most significance on. So that authenticity around the purpose has to be something that is appreciated throughout the organization. But it is more than just bringing people within the organization on board. It's about this notion of really understanding the problem that needs to be solved and who is involved in helping to solve that problem. And let me just illustrate this in relation to one example. And the example I'm going to take is of a, of a pharmaceutical company, the Danish pharmaceutical company, Nova Nordisk, which makes insulin. And uh, Nova Nordisk a few years ago had it its purpose to produce insulin. Now that's not a purpose as I'm defining it. It's about producing profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. That's just a description of what it does. And it began to realize that that was an inadequate description of its purpose because the company was failing to deliver insulin to those parts of the world that were most in need of it. 80, insulin is used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. 85% of type 2 diabetes is found in low and middle income countries. So Nova Nordis began to think more carefully about what its purpose really was. And it concluded that actually it was to help people treat type 2 diabetes which might involve them in taking insulin, but frequently taking insulin was not necessarily the best way of treating their type two diabetes. So it started working with hospitals, doctors, and universities in different parts of the world to identify what were the best ways of treating type two diabetes in different parts of the world. And then it realized, well, actually, its purpose was even more than just helping people treat type 2 diabetes. It was to help them avoid getting type 2 diabetes in the first place. So it then started working with governments, with local authorities, with health workers in different countries to identify the changes in lifestyles which would help people avoid getting type 2 diabetes in the first place. Now, that illustrates very well the sorts of processes one has to go through in terms of really defining one's purpose clearly. And Nova Nordis now defines its purpose as being to defeat diabetes. It clarifies what is involved in going along that journey of defining one's purpose. And then, in terms of determining the types of partnerships and relationships outside of the organization, as well as within the organization, that are required to be able to deliver on that purpose. Because Nova Nordis did not have the expertise in terms of determining other forms of treatment, did not have the expertise internally in terms of identifying changes in lifestyles. It needed the support of others in terms of being able to do that. I just love this example of Nova Nordisk. And so 
what I see in front of me is a really, really transformational process. I mean, we, we, our, our podcast is called Leading Transformational Change, and there's, there's a lot of change that is called transformational, but I guess much of it isn't really. But this sounds like a really transformational process. It's, it's something that really goes incredibly deep in the heart of an organization. And, and something that I'm wondering is, is what are kind of some of the roadblocks that, that organizations meet along the way? You've talked a bit about resistance before, that sometimes you might not feel or we're not sure if the senior leadership is totally behind this or, or, or something else. But what are some of the kind of hurdles that, that you see that are important to address? Well, I've mentioned the one of middle management and what's needed to overcome that. The other one that the boards of companies mention frequently in this context is a lack of alignment between what companies are seeking to do, and in particular, boards of companies see as being needed in terms of the enactment of their purpose, and what institutional investors are looking for. And there's often quite a degree of despondency expressed by the boards of companies that their institutional investors are not particularly interested in their corporate purposes, don't really ask many questions about them. Predominantly, they are focused on more traditional financial considerations. Uh, and to the extent that they do uh, ask questions beyond that, they're in relation to the much broader factors around ESG and in in many cases, institutional investors just basically equate corporate purpose with environmental, social, and governance, let's say ESG. Really having an understanding and a support from institutions in terms of the determination and implementation of a company's purpose is critically important. It's critically important because however much the leadership and the board of a company is dedicated to the fulfillment of a company's purpose, if they don't have the support of their shareholders, then it can very rapidly come to naught because it only takes a hedge fund activist or a... a a hostile takeover to come along for the focus of the management have to shift virtually overnight on how does one maximize the share price of the company in the short term. So the support and the genuine engagement of investors in the purpose of the company is critical for the leadership or the board or anyone to be able to convey the notion of the company's purpose in a credible form. And at the moment, in many cases, there is still a serious disconnect between the investors and companies. So if we think about this from the position of the investors, I mean, they've taken financial risks to invest into a business and of course you uh, out of that you expect 
profit and i mean that's that's how how it works so what would you say to them what should be their reason to get on board with this this way of thinking well you'll recall that i said at the start that purpose is about producing profitable solutions and it's not about philanthropy it's about hard-nosed business so that profit is key to the fulfillment uh, of a purpose and in fact it's much more than that what i'm describing here is in essence a business innovation it's a way of thinking about business in such a form as to create greater value not just greater values for society and the environment but greater value for financial uh, investors for shareholders as well and the reason for that is that in the process of really identifying the problems that need to be solved and finding innovative ways of solving them what a company does is to create immense competitive advantage over its competitors in terms of being able to do that what happened in the pandemic is illustrative of that and the reason why purpose is now so much more widely recognized to be critical and key to the success of the companies is that it was the basis on which the most successful companies during and coming out of the pandemic have been commercially uh, successful and it's not hard to see why because what a pandemic or indeed any crisis does is to destroy an immense amount of economic value and it destroys a lot of economic as well as social value and creates a great deal of human suffering because it creates problems problems for individuals and communities and the natural world and those problems then in turn create new opportunities because if one is a business that is thinking about how does one solve problems profitably then the arrival of new problems creates new business opportunities that purposeful companies are then in the position to establish how to solve in commercially viable ways so what has come out of the pandemic has been a realization that this focus on solving problems is a source of immense value creation for companies and their investors as well as the creation of immense benefits for the whole of societies and for us as human beings is there a case to be made that perhaps sometimes we are trying to solve problems that don't necessarily really exist i'm i'm thinking about for example we right now see a uh, a race to space from from a number of of our leading billionaire business leaders in the world and of course you could argue that perhaps that is trying to solve a problem that is not necessarily there that we have a lot more pressing problems than being able to take more people into space so 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 what's what's your perspective on that never never underestimate the significance of vision 
and innovation. People would have said to Christopher Columbus, you know, why are you bothering to set off on your voyage of discovery when you know, we have so many problems in Europe that you could help to solve through trade closer to home? So the potential benefits of really thinking in visionary terms and really moving beyond what is conventionally accepted is an entirely legitimate objective. And the potential benefits associated with moving the frontiers of the world further out are really beyond anything that we can conceive. If one thinks about the innovation of the World Wide Web, at the time that it happened, it wasn't really viewed as being anything of particular importance or significance. And people certainly had no notion of the commercial opportunities that it created, let alone all of the social benefits, as well as costs associated with it. But those types of imaginative activities and investments are ultimately the source in many cases of immense social benefits to the world. So I think it is extremely valuable that people are trying to conceive of the unimaginable and think about what potentially could be the benefits associated with doing that. I love, Colin, that I got an answer that I didn't expect, which which was fantastic. And I think that there's so incredibly much truth in that. We, we need that visionary perspective. And I wanted to ask you, finally, just how people can connect with you and, and follow more of your work. And I, and, and I wanted to mention that we've, we've had Jay Jacob on this podcast earlier, and, and he's a part of the Economics of Mutuality together with Bruno Roch and, and many others. And of course, you and Oxford University has been a really influential part in developing that whole concept. And maybe as a super short question before I, before I let you just share share some ways people can connect with you is, is there something in, in your work in uh, with the economics of mutuality that you think is, is specifically helpful in terms of thinking about putting purpose to practice in businesses? Yes, I think that there's one thing that's come out of the program that is potentially the most significant. And let me take you back to my original definition of purpose about producing profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. And I said that there was a second part about not profiting from producing problems. And I said that I'd say a bit more about that. Well, I haven't said any more until now. But that is, in some respects, even more significant than the first part. Because what that is saying is that in terms of the way in which we think about and define the notion of what a profit is, we have to conceive of it in a very different way from what we have done to date. So people often pose the question, well, is there any evidence that this really works, that producing solutions does create greater value? To which the answer is absolutely. 
And it's not just that I can uh, cite examples of companies, but come back to my notion of what a profit is. A profit is not something that derives from producing problems. So anything that produces a profit is something that creates a, a benefit without a detriment. And that is exactly the way in which we want to and must incentivize people going forward so that it becomes tautological that uh, a purpose is something that creates value. Because if a company is not solving a problem and is creating a problem, then it does not have a legitimate basis on which to say that it's profiting. And that comes down to then the basic way in which we define what a profit is and not only define it, but measure it in terms of what from an accounting perspective and evaluation perspective, one should regard as being a definition of a profit. Thank you so much, Colin. So now coming back to the final question of what are some ways that our listeners can connect with you and, and follow your work? Okay, well, uh, thank you for raising that. And um, the first thing I'd say is that uh, probably the most straightforward way of connecting is via the various websites where the uh, work that I've been doing is uh, available. So the first one I'll mention is in relation to the work on the economics of mutuality. Uh, and we recently published a, a book called Putting Purpose into Practice, which I edited with uh, Bruno Roche, which is available. It's an Oxford University Press book, but it's an open access book. So it's available free of charge uh, on our website. And you just go to purposeintopractice.org. So it's purposeintopractice.org. And then the second website that I'll mention is work that I've been doing in the business school on the Enacting Purpose Initiative. Uh, and that's got uh, a website. You go to the enactingpurposeinitiative.org uh, website and you'll find the reports and uh, uh, papers that we've written as part of that. And the third that I'll mention is work that I've been doing for the British Academy on the future of the corporation. And you should just go to the British Academy website and the future of the corporation, and you can see the various reports that we have been producing there. So you don't have any dancing videos on TikTok? Not yet. And I should have, and I'll be working on that. Colin, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.